0: Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Lori Ferguson Wilbert is the author of Handle With Care, a book about the importance of touch in human interaction. Rabbit Room reviewer Jen Kell says, The best way to describe this book is an approachable theology of touch, woven with stories, kindness, and respect. She isn't going to outline a who-to-touch policy for you, but she might challenge you to at least give more hugs. Lori has also been blogging for 20 years at Sayable.net. Lori Ferguson-Wilbert, thank you so much for being on The Habit Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I am uh, so excited. I guess this... uh, Episode is going to release right around the same time that your book, Handle with Care, releases. This will release on the 3rd of February and you release on the
1: 4th. We, we release on the fourth, yeah. Yeah.
0: Great. So tell me a little bit about what's what's going on in that book.
1: Yeah, it's called Handle with Care, and then it's got kind of a doozy of a subtitle of how Jesus Redeems the Power of Touch in Life and Ministry. And so I'm just kind of talking through the Gospels and the way that Jesus interacted as a body with other bodies, mm-hmm. and yeah,
0: So yeah. yeah and uh, I know you're interested in incarnation. And, yeah, uh, I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you ought to be. You know, if you're a Christian person. But, but <laughs> the uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about how writing and incarnation are are related to one another, because you know it's, it's like. Uh, Shakespeare said that the poet gives to Airy nothing a local habitation and a name um, we, we are we are in fleshing we're bringing big ideas down to to the world where we live um, yeah. so I, I imagine you've done some thinking along those lines. I
1: have actually done a little bit of thinking along those lines. I think probably when I started thinking about sort of incarnation i was I was reading in college I was reading a a Rilke poem um, called the ninth Elegy mm-hmm. in in it he talks about making things sayable and so Mm. we give things names um call this a rock and a tree and a chair and those kind of things we give them names and that makes them real Mm. and so i think about writing as a work of incarnation is that we we're taking these ideas and we're putting flesh on them we're putting um story we're giving story to them Mm -hmm. um replacing them sort of in the construct and the narrative of, of the place in which we live and our thoughts and our theology and all of those things. And so I think that's mostly how I think about incarnation and in, in writing um, as it pertains to
0: humans. So w- when you say uh, we – I may be misquoting you here but, – but you said we we make things real when we put words to them, is that mm. is that a fair summation of what you just said?
1: Well, that's what Rilke said. Yeah, he said, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps we're here just to say and to give things to make things sayable, Yeah.
0: Huh. I can't decide how I feel about that. Um I mean, you know, just just because the um obviously a, a thing has its has its thinginess, whether we we say it or not. It's true. It's true. I mean, I mean, this is
1: this is a philosophy conversation as old as the day. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not a new conversation. I think um Especially as I think, well, for instance, I mean, if we think about Jesus, um, God is real whether Jesus came or not, Mm -hmm. Um, but he sent Jesus, but our father sent Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so he knew that some form of embodiment, some form of realness, some form of um, flesh and blood was important. Um, to the gonna be important to the gospel and be mm-hmm. important for his people. and so I think there's something true about that as well when we talk about um, making things real by saying them, by giving them names, by giving them a story by telling them who they are and what they are. yeah, um, so they're they're real, whether we say that or not, just as God is real. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jesus came to make it more real,
0: yeah, yeah, okay and make it and make that reality accessible to yeah, us. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um as I was thinking about what, you know, as I was thinking about your book about touch. And it's I mean it's it's literally about the value of touch in relationships in in faith and it, all those things, right? Um I was thinking about something that I thought it was Aquinas, but now I can't find it. Where he says um, he, he spoke of, of uh, the sense of touch as the mother of all feeling, or the, the or the mother of all senses, um, which is pretty interesting. It, the, the point is, it's through the sense of touch that we navigate the world in our bodies, um, and I think that probably is is relevant to to writing in some interesting ways that. that I had I started this conversation on an earlier episode with Helena Sorensen, and we didn't we didn't quite finish. I mean, I felt like there was a lot more we could have talked about, uh, but I didn't have the the mechanisms to 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 you know continue thinking through it. But I have a feeling maybe uh, you're the you're just the person to talk through these things with.
1: I think I mean I I don't know what Aquinas was saying in context. I think that um, many writers have said. You know, Margaret Atwood said that um, touch comes before all of their senses. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of writers who have said that touches, you know, the the quintessential sense. Uh, and I think there's something to that, um, perhaps, but I also think that to someone who can't see or can't hear, um, those senses feel, they feel perhaps like they're missing some something um, essential. Um, and so I'm not sure how I feel about the mother of all senses, but I do mm-hmm. think that uh, I think that feeling something um, is important to the work of writing. And I, I mean that in a physical sense, but I also mean that in a in a sort of uh, emotional sense as well. And I was thinking about, um, and I don't know the exact mechanics of leprosy, but um, I've heard it said that the thing about leprosy is that it, um, it actually, you become numb, your, mm-hmm. your sense of touch yeah. becomes numb. And that's how you start to sort of lose body parts or injure the same body parts again and again and again, because you can't feel. Yeah. And so I find that really interesting. And I don't, I don't talk about this much in the book, but I find that really interesting as a writer because I think um, if I'm not feeling, if I'm numb to the world around me and the things that are inside of me and the things that the, that the Lord is doing and the things that, Those are people around me are doing. If I'm numb to those things, um, eventually they're gonna. It's not gonna produce any kind of fruit. Yeah. Um, And so I find that the idea of touch as uh, perhaps as a mother of senses, or maybe as a a chief sense, um, and the loss of it being an incredible loss for for us as humans. Um, And when I think about like leper colonies and things like that, just being outed into um exiled kind of yeah but i also find it really interesting as writers um we have to feel things and i I think that's what in the 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 interview that you did with helena i think that's what she was saying is we can't put on armor to protect protect ourselves from criticism or hurt but we also have to actually actively feel Mm -hmm. um what is happening around us and within us in order to produce
0: yeah, if, if if you're not in touch with, I mean, think about it. I mean, so many of our metaphors for for mm-hmm. you know they they are touch metaphors. Even you know to be in touch or to feel you know. Uh, but if if we're if we're not in touch, if, if we're not in touch, if we're not vulnerable. Um, then then how how can we even uh, connect enough to to write?
1: Yeah, Andy Crouch has a really—I um, I tell everyone about it because I think it's so so and so smart. Um, he talks about the four quadrants in his book, mm-hmm. uh, strong and weak, and yeah. he and he basically makes the argument that you can't have human flourishing unless you have both authority and vulnerability, and mm-hmm. that means not only you as a minister, you as a speaker, you as a teacher, you as a writer, um, you as a marginalized person. Um, whoever you are, you have to have both authority and vulnerability in order to flourish and to help those around you flourish. And I think that when I think about writing, when I think about being embodied, when I think about touching, um, and feeling, I think, man, that's, that's you f- sort of getting in touch with that vulnerable side, because it is really vulnerable to, to be touched and it's vulnerable to touch. Yeah. And, um, and so that's because I think so many of us are just prone to sort of walk around authoritatively hmm. and speak and teach and write authoritatively, but we also have to be vulnerable
0: yeah that's a that's a a great insight um, and do okay so so, so this idea of, of vulnerability and authority um, hmm. Do that's you?
1: all. That's all, Andy Crouch, not me. <laughs>
0: sure, yeah, I I, 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 get that. But we're still. But, but, uh, it sounds like you've done some thinking on it. So I I, wanna, uh, I would like yeah, to pursue that just yeah. a little bit, a little bit uh, further. Um, and I guess, do you? Is there a way? Do you ever run across writing or writers that are too vulnerable and insufficiently authoritative?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that. Um, I think. I think in some ways we all have um, moments where we're uh, too authoritative and not vulnerable enough and too vulnerable and not authoritative enough Mm -hmm. or don't carry with us the authority um, that we need to carry. Um, Andy also talks about manipulative authority. So there's your manipulative vulnerability. So a kind Hmm. of vulnerability that Um, just aims to make people feel something without actually accomplishing and and resulting in real fruitfulness. So I think that both authority and vulnerability can be wielded as um, weapons, maybe, Uh in a lot of ways. Um, And so I think as as Christians, as both embodied people who can feel uh, brokenness and feel vulnerability, but who have also been given all authority in heaven and earth, I think that one of the jobs that we have as Christians is to learn to carry both of those things carefully and in tandem um, and and equally in some ways. We have to work to carry them equally. Um, yeah. And I think anytime they get off balance, and this is what Andy talks about, um, that's when we lead to suffering and exploitation and, and all manner of sin against ourselves and against others.
0: Hmm, yeah. Great, and I think we, we when you speak of authority, that's also um, using that authority, uh, that power for um, for good rather than for for self interested means. Yeah. Um, which again, it's it's hard to use that authority and power for good if, if there's no uh, vulnerability mixed in with it. If if we, you know, it's easy um, it's easy to mistreat people when you when you don't feel pain.
1: Yeah. I think that's the thing that surprised me so much while I was writing the book was how vulnerable Christ made himself. Um and just i am saying like for instance when he was um in the house of the Pharisee and Mary um came and uh, washed washed his feet. Um I just think man uh, what a situation in which like he could have had some terrible, awful gossip said about him. Yeah. And yet he made himself vulnerable. I mean, she was making herself vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and watching his feet, but he made himself vulnerable too. And I think that's so, we miss that. I think a lot with Jesus is um, sort of his, the. It's it wasn't a risk cause he's God, but like the <laughs> risk that he carried by becoming embodied. Yeah. Yeah in walking among people and being touched and handled and sinfully in some ways and righteously in other ways yeah
0: yeah yeah the the um that's what makes that's i I, from what i understand that was what 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 makes christianity unique among the world religions is a a vulnerable god yeah um and um and i think that's again about this is all I always say writing is about so much more than writing and I think it's one one, another one of those places where our, our theology has a direct bearing on the way we approach our writing. Yeah. Um that's great stuff. You, you had mentioned or we had both mentioned the the my conversation with Helena uh earlier and um and one thing that Helena had said was um that that when you um well we 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 talked about um being thick-skinned and being thin-skinned, and I'm, <laughs> I've I've been very often told writers they need to be a little more thick-skinned, you know, and and be be uh, not so sensitive. And Helena's point is no, the sensitivity is what makes you able to do the work, and that if you if you wrap a thick hide around somebody whose gift is based on a sensitivity to the world, then you're destroying something that's important. And that seems relevant to to what you, what you're doing in your book.
1: Yeah, I think I might carry that a little bit farther and say I think that we have to be thin skinned in the act of creating art. Mm-hmm. So in the writing, in the songwriting, in the art making, mm-hmm. we have to be thin skinned. We have to sort of, you know, be bun- carry that vulnerability um, very close to us. Um, but I think. I think there's, it's also true what you're saying. We do need to have thick skin when it comes to um, uh, critique or criticism mm-hmm. and um, and recognizing that we cannot please everyone. And, and also like sometimes we need really good feedback from people, yeah, uh, especially people who love us. Um, and even sometimes from people who don't know us at all. Um, because I think that we need to, th- we need to think about how our art is bearing weight on the world, not just on the the audience that we have in mind, the people we want to reach. But how is our art bearing weight on the world at large um, among people that we're not, we don't know and we're not uh, familiar with their story? Um, and so there does need to be an, a measure of, and I don't know if it's thick skin would be the, the word I would use, but mm-hmm. I think there needs to be a measure of resilience maybe. Yeah um, in hearing feedback and critique and and things like that, because we want to grow. We don't want to, we never want to believe that our art is the sort of the pinnacle or the best or the, um, right. We want to be people who are being formed. We're the, we're the, we are the clay. We are not the potter. And Uh so we want to be formed and, and and molded into more like christ and that's going to take sometimes critique that's hard to hear
0: yeah yeah i mean i i guess probably um to to uh in we're talking about um uh, to say sort of using the same the same word to mean two different things um when in other words being being uh being thin-skinned or sensitive as an observer Certainly doesn't preclude being thick-skinned or tough when it comes to to receiving criticism, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good. So, have you ever received uh criticism from somebody who didn't know you that you benefited from?
1: I've never received criticism. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, from someone I didn't know that I've yeah benefited. something
0: you've written. I mean, I, you know, you've you've published a lot of a lot of articles that have got had a lot of readers. Um, yeah yeah, I'm I mean, a ton, I would say. I think that um
1: i I think that I have a very small world. Um, I live in a I, I'm on purpose. I live in a very small world. I want to have a small life. and so a lot of the feedback that I get is from people who don't know me. Uh-huh. Um and I want to stay soft to um, what they have to say and what their story is and what their experiences are. Uh, apart from my writing but also the way things bear on them in my writing i'm thinking of a piece that i wrote probably 10 years ago so i I, i'm the child of divorce my parents are divorced Mm. and i that really um uh radically formed my brain and my life Mm -hmm. and my loves and my fears uh in a myriad of ways and so i i wrote an article probably 10 years ago just on being a child of divorce and how painful that was. And I, in that article begged, you know, a parent who might be considering to, to consider their children. And, um, and 10 years later, I'm now married to a man who walked through a divorce and, and hopefully in 10 years, I've also grown and matured and suffered a lot more. And I've seen um, how complicated divorce can be for Uh an adult and for a parent who's going through that. And, um, and I wrote something recently and some around this idea and, and someone messaged me and said, you know, you wrote that article 10 years ago and it really hurt. It was Mm. really painful for me to read. And, um, and I'm grateful that you, you know, you you've written this article today but it just got me thinking man i i just want to be so aware that what i'm writing today i'm writing from a small sort of bubble of information and suffering and experience and so i think it's made me in some ways it's made me a lot quieter than i used to be in terms of in terms of writing i think i used to sort of publish anywhere that would publish me mm. and these days i'm a lot more picky about where i publish and what i publish and what i write and and a lot of that is because i just find that i want to care for the reader in a way that i didn't care as much 10 years ago
0: and so um how does help me understand why the uh being more choosy about where you publish uh, play that out for me how, how is that how does that um make the connection for me between those the the things just loving your reader more and being more careful about where you publish
1: yeah i think i think you know 10 years ago i was just like i'll I'll write for anyone i don't care if you pay me i don't care what else is on your Uh site i don't care what other what else your message is and i think i'm i'm just a lot more careful about what is this group or this publication known Uh for I um who are their readers what's their worldview? Uh, and I'm just I'm just more careful about that because I, I know that we are sort of we're known by the people we keep company with. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to be careful
0: uh-huh. about that. Yeah. Um you've been blogging since what, the year two thousand? Is that is that right?
1: That is right. Yeah. Yep.
0: That is wild. It's twenty years. Yeah. It is kind of crazy when I think about it. Yeah. Um and so what has what has changed about blogging in 20 years
1: that's a, that's a really good question I think that five years ago I would have said everything had changed about blogging uh-huh. um and I think you know that's when everyone was saying is blogging dead um, and it, you know Twitter was the new or you know sh- micro blogging was the thing five years ago but mm-hmm. I think there's been a really cool kind of uh, resurgence in blogging blogging recently uh-huh that has really sort of delighted me because i think that a blog is a place where we can practice i think of it as my living room um it's a place where i can it's, it can be whatever i want it to be and i can invite people in and i can you know make it as warm and welcoming as i want and yet it's also a place where i practice real my writing um and i it's been a place where i've practiced my writing for a really long time um Sometimes with no right readers, sometimes with many readers, and mm-hmm. so it's just kind of in process that way. But I, I feel excited. Uh, I think about the future of blogging. I don't, I don't know how long the future will be of blogging, but <laughs> I feel excited about it being a place where w- those who will stick with it um, can really just, just sort of practice their scales.
0: Yeah. Do you? Um, do you? get uh, as many comments on your blog as you did say 10 years ago?
1: Uh, I don't. And here's why I shut down comments. Oh, about, okay. I
0: guess that's one that, that would, that would cause a fewer comments.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I found that, um, and y- you know, people, everyone can land in a different place here. This is where I've chosen to land. I found that a lot of comments on blogs were, they were, they, they were sort of the the top of a conversation, but they weren't a real conversation. Huh. And I wanted as much as possible for, for someone to read something unsayable and then be sort of contemplative about it instead of just needing to comment on it uh-huh. um, and move past it. I wanted them to think about it and perhaps bring it back into their community and, and talk about it with their people instead of, because I think sometimes commenting can be a way of sort of of closing that chapter and moving on to the next thing Hmm. and so that was kind of the way the reason that I shut it down and I still have emails open people can email me but um but generally I don't I can't respond to every email and so I that's been a really good move for me it's also been a really healthy move for me just in terms of protecting my my own sort of ego like space not letting endless compliments sort of flood Like, those things are not helpful, I don't think, for any reader. And also not making a space for people who haven't perhaps earned the right to critique in a way that is uh, careful and intentional and just are trolling. So I don't have Mm to really have either of those two things
0: happening. And how long ago did you shut off comments?
1: I don't know exactly. I think probably eight years ago. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Um. In, uh, in your uh, your blog post that you entitled, uh, Is Blogging Dead? Uh, I love something you wrote there, and I, I'd like to hear you talk about it. You said, I used to think a writer is was just one who writes, but I've become less generous. I think and believe now that a writer is one who withholds words from the public until they've gotten them right in the private. Having something to say doesn't mean it ought to be said, but saying it like the poet said makes it real. I think that's... Uh, a remarkable uh, passage. I, I didn't mean that as a compliment. I'm sorry, I know you, I know you you don't like compliments, so uh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think that goes back to what we were kind of saying in the beginning was and that's the poet that I'm talking about there is Roka. And so, um, I think sometimes we need to be doing some more internal uh, work before we bring things to to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't write in private. You should be writing in private. Sure. But I think that we are too quick to, and I, I don't remember when I wrote that post. Um, I think it was years ago, but I, I think that there, and it, it, there probably still is, I'm just not quite as involved in the social media, back and forth, uh-huh. log wars that were happening. But there was a temptation to just like very quickly sort of write off a blog in response to someone's decision or, and, and I think that still happens actually a lot. Uh-huh. And I, I just think we need to be thinking about things a lot more, um, considering the, the views of other people before uh-huh. we write and publish.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just because something's true doesn't mean, mean <laughs> it needs to be said right now. And yeah, these, these yeah. are, these are, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, then you, you in that same passage you got back to that idea we actually that you started with that, that saying something makes it real that, that by yeah. you're putting a i guess you know you're putting a stake in the ground that that you know when you when you put something out there you have put a stake in the ground and we don't always need a stake in the ground every day <laughs> on every situation
1: yeah i actually think we need not and this might get me in trouble far fewer stakes in the ground um i think there are some things that are absolutely true um yeah. when i think about the gospel and theology but i think as christians we we need to have far fewer stakes in the ground and yeah. bigger tables
0: <laughs> yeah i absolutely i mean it, it, i think if we had fewer stakes in the ground we, we'd find it easier to take seriously the stakes in the ground that we do have and that we need to yeah. have
1: yes yeah
0: yeah all right, um, Lori, We need to we need to uh, bring this in for a landing. So I'm going to end with the question I always end with: Who are the writers who make you want to write?
1: I think Eugene Peterson is probably going to be at the top mm. of that list for me. Yeah, that's a good one.
0: Um, yeah, I just I think you're the first person to give me that answer, and I'm surprised that you're the first one that I've gotten that from.
1: <laughs> he's just so pastoral, and I, you can yeah. tell when he's reading his work. He is not caught up in himself yeah he wants to care for his reader and i think that he even talks about that i think in a uh, soulful spirituality he talks about being careful writers so mm-hmm. full of care um being shepherds of words and i love that yeah that's that great makes me, that makes me want to write
0: that's great you got anybody else
1: i mean i always have loved um you know the the old favorites annie Dillard and. Mm-hmm. Kathleen Norris and Barbara Mm -hmm. Kingsolver's essays and people like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have
0: Uh, have you read um, Acedia and Me by Kathleen Norris? Isn't that great? That's not a great book.
1: I, man, I, that book was very powerful for me at a particular period in my life. Yeah. uh, um, Yeah. I love that
0: book. I read it when I was in the throes of Acedia and I read it when I was not in the throes of Acedia and it was like, it was kind of like two different books and it was great both times.
1: I should do that again. Yeah. I read it in the throes of Acidia, so I should probably need to reread it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Outside of it. Yeah. It's a, uh, what a great book. Um, all right, Lori, thanks so much for being here. And, Thank um, you for having me. It's been good to talk to you, and I hope we can do this again sometime.
1: Thank you.
2: All right. See you later. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit jessraymusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit
0: Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This
2: podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.